If you think about it, you can pray for all the parents in Sunday school this morning. Uh, still got, I'm sure, uh, kids in there with uh, sugar still pumping through their blood and uh, a lack of sleep. My son being one of them. So. <laughs> all right, let me get a timer here. And then our, uh, our furnace stopped working last night, so I'm a little bit all over the place. It, it totally turned on right before, we, right before I left this morning, so that we're all good, but uh, my brain's all over the place. Uh, anyhow, this is our lab. We're, we're doing one final week in Advent uh, today, uh, so we're covering the topic uh, Grace and Truth uh, from John 1. So we've covered four themes uh, throughout the book of first, or John, John 1, excuse me. Uh, verses 1 to 18, so Jesus being the Word, Jesus being the life and the light, and then the Word becoming flesh, and then uh, Jesus full of grace and truth. Uh, and then we'll have a couple sermons at the beginning of the year, kind of our purpose and pursuits, and then we'll jump into the book of Judges uh, sometime around the middle, middle to the end of January, and we will make our way through uh, Judges. Uh, if, if you remember, for those who were here back in May of 2020, May 31st, this is COVID had started a couple months before, remember? Uh, that's when we actually started going through books of John. So we did the letter of 1 John, then we did Revelation, and now we've done four, uh, four messages from John 1. And uh, this is our last Sunday with John for a while, so it's sort of like uh, saying goodbye to John. Uh, but that's a year and a half that we were in John's writings, and uh, I hope that you can now look at them. And they're, they're very different writings, right? The, the, letter, uh, the letter that we went through is very different than Revelation, apocalyptic li literature, uh, that also is very different from the gospel uh, that we've had just a couple weeks in. But uh, if you have not had a chance, I think I mentioned this at the very beginning uh, uh, when we started First uh, John, maybe I did, maybe I didn't, but there's this movie out there called St. John in Exile, and it's really just one, one gentleman uh, acting as John and all the other characters as he tells some of the story. It's not a, like a word-for-word -word, uh, thing. It's, he's using creative license to, to kind of tell the story of how he interacted with Jesus, how he saw Jesus, and uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful movie. Uh, I turned it on again last night, and I ended up getting sucked in and watched the whole thing again last night uh, as sort of my farewell uh, to John. Uh, but remember, John, John was a man, uh, we've been reading his writings, who, who walked with Jesus, and he saw all those miracles. And uh, John, uh, if you remember this from the book of Mark, he was, he was called, uh, him and his brother, remember their nickname? Sons of Thunder. If you remember that scene, uh, they're, they're walking with Jesus through a Samaritan village and uh, they don't, they don't want to let Jesus and his disciples pass through because they're headed towards Jerusalem and they're not going to let somebody who's going to Jerusalem pass through their village. And you remember what John, John and uh, his brother come and ask Jesus? Remember that? Hey, you want us to call fire down on this village from heaven? Destroy them? <laughs> That's the son of thunder in action. Just quick and ready to destroy, ready to rumble. Uh, but reading his works is very different, is it not? 
John, out of all the authors, uses the word love more than any of them. So he eventually became known throughout church history as the apostle of love. Now what happened? Well, it was his encounter with Jesus and experiencing the grace of Jesus year in, year out, this drip, 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 that his history says uh, that uh, John, because being the oldest apostle, uh, you know, lived to the longest age, uh, they, they say that they would dr- kind of carry him into a fellowship of the church because uh, he couldn't walk at this point, and he would just say, love, love. That's, that's all he could really say at that point. God, God, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, took a man, a son of thunder, and made him into a loving, uh, gentle man. Uh, we also see that uh, John was uh, one of the ones that denied the Lord. He, he walked with Jesus for three years, saw his miracles, saw him raise Lazarus from the dead, saw him walk on water, saw him speak to the waves and still them, saw him cast out demons and have authority over demons. Was John, Jesus even told John and the other disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified. He's going to be handed over. All of this was planned out. And yet the day came and John denied him. And yet then John went on to serve the Lord for decades. We see this wonderful uh, scene at the end of John's gospel when they've gone off fishing, Peter and the disciples. And Jesus comes and tells them, hey, you're on my team. You who denied me, I want you to go. I'm not done with you. And what is that? But John experiencing the grace of God up close and personal. Jesus would have been right at that point, or just at that point of saying, hey, you denied me, you're off the team. But that's not the way the Christ comes, who's full of grace and full of truth. He comes to his denying disciples and says, no, you're with me. You are my people. You go feed my sheep. John, now writing his gospel, an old man, has seen much hardship. His own brother was killed for the faith. His friends had died. John himself experienced persecution. And he still thinks of his friend and his Lord, his master, Jesus, as he is the one who is full of grace. He's full of truth. If I were to sum up the point here, uh, I would say it this way, of one of the things that John's getting at in this section, that the greatest revelation of God's grace and truth was in the person of Jesus himself. Or you might say it, uh, the, the way that God uh, demonstrated his unmerited kindness, the undeserved kindness of God, and the trustworthiness of God was in the person and work of the Son of God himself, Jesus the Christ. So what I want to do is just unpack that uh, this morning. We'll take three stops to kind of build that statement, uh, and then we'll wrap up. So the first, I want to just talk about God's grace and truth. So God's grace and truth. 
Uh, verse 18 here uh, actually is, you might consider that part of the climax of the opening of, of his gospel, that no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, talking about the Son, he has made him known to us. In, in particular, in this passage right here, he has made known the fullness of God's grace, the fullness of God's truth. The Son has made this, uh, this part of God uh, known to us. Uh, so let's just, let's just make sure we know what we're talking about, God's grace and his truth. So grace, uh, you uh, may know that John Wright, he writes five books of the Bible, the Gospel, then 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then Revelation. So five books. How many times do you think John uses this word grace throughout his books? All five combined. It's actually seven. So he, he doesn't, John does not park out on this word a whole lot, really. He uses it twice in the book of Revelation, both in the opening. You know, this is a common, common way to open a book. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, or however he starts out the book. And then he closes it with it at the very last statement, right? The, the grace of the Lord be with you all, right? So that, that's very normal. So twice in the book of Revelation, once in the, book, uh, or the letter of Second John, again, at the very opening, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, or however you states it. So that takes care of three of them. There's only four left. And the four, those four show up in the Gospel of John. And all four of them are right here in verses 14 to 18, if you caught that. The first one in verse 14, twice in verse 16, once in verse 17. All four of the occurrences uh, of this word uh, for John in his Gospel show up right here. So we know that we're... We're hitting on a hot spot here for John. He, he wants to bring this front and center in his gospel. Jesus, uh, full of God's grace. Grace, as you may know, I, I think the, the kind of the popular definition, sim, sim, like the simplified version, I think, I think it's helpful. I think it works. Uh, the unmerited kindness of God. The undeserved favor of God. Gra- grace is grace because it's not earned. Right? It's a wage is what you earn, or it's some sort of a transaction, like you did this and therefore you have earned this. Grace is not that way. Grace is looking at someone and saying, you don't deserve anything good, good coming from me, but I'm going to give that goodness to you. And God is referred to as the God of all grace, right? because he dispenses grace. All grace is, is, finds its origin in him. Because God is full of grace. Uh, okay, and then we have the word truth, obviously. Uh, John, uh, this is a big word for him. So the, the word for truth shows up 109 times in our New Testament. Uh, 45 of those are from John, so almost, almost half of them. Uh, and 25 of them come from this gospel. So John, John uh, is heavy on this word, and he uses it several different ways. Uh, so he will use it in chapter 3, uh, verse 21, uh, to refer to right behavior. He'll, he'll say, whoever, whoever uh, walks in uh, or does what is true has come to the light. Whoever does what is true has come to light. It's this idea of doing right behavior. Um, he'll use it uh, later in the book, uh, chapter 16, verse 7, to talk uh, about the way we speak about something that's factual. What I say, it's factual content. Remember, Jesus says, um, I tell you the truth. 
Unless I go, the Holy Spirit won't come. That's a true statement. I tell you the truth. This is real. The content of my words is, is trustworthy. You can, you can bank on that. Uh, we'll see this word in chapter 8 uh, to refer to simply to reality, especially spiritual reality. Or chapter 5 when he says that John, uh, referring to John the Baptist, John testified about the truth. And what did John testify about? But the Lord himself. Repent and believe, right? The kingdom of God. So it's simply just talking about reality as it is. Or Jesus will say in chapter 8, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Right? You will know reality as it truly is, as God has declared it, and the goodness of God in the gospel. And that truth will set you free. Uh, We also see it uh, as something simply reliable. Uh, in, J- in John eight forty four, he uses actually the, this as a contrast with Satan, uh, talking about the devil being a murderer from the beginning and, and the father of all lies. You remember that scene, maybe? Uh, he's, there he says that the devil, he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Right? All, all that comes out of him is anti-truth. And so it's just simply like being reliable. So I think a good way to sum this up, this word, uh, the way John uses it, is simply to use the word trustworthiness. It's that, it's that something is trustworthy, and when using it in relation to God, it's referring to that God is trustworthy in everything he commands us. We, we can trust that those are good commands for us. Uh, God is trustworthy in, in all that he claims about reality, about life, about the way the world is. What's right and what's wrong, God is trustworthy in all that he claims about reality. And God is trustworthy in all that he promises. All that he promises about life and death and atonement and future. God can be trusted. So I would, would, you know, even just for translation's sake, I would probably say trustworthiness, the, the unmerited favor and trustworthiness of God. So point number one, saying, just trying to talk about God's grace and truth. And we just should pause for a second and realize that it is a wonderful reality that the term God and the phrase grace and truth can be spoken in the same sentence. That it's God's grace and God's truth, trustworthiness. Because could you imagine if God... And grace did not go together. Remember, grace is gift. Nobody's required to give grace, right? Could you imagine if God and grace didn't go together? What would it, what would it be like for us? We would receive the justice of God. And God would still be holy. God would still be good. God would still be righteous. But the fact that we receive grace is amazing. That we can be people that say, no, God is Gracious, that's glorious. Or the fact that God in truth or God in trustworthiness can be right next to each other, that's wonderful. What would life be like if we could not trust God, if he was not trustworthy? If God were even shown one time, one time to not be trustworthy, Where would your hope be? 
you wouldn't know. If, if God were shown to fail in his promises a single moment, we wouldn't know the next time it might happen. Maybe he didn't prepare a place for us. Maybe that's not going to happen. Maybe the atonement's not real. Maybe it wasn't sufficient enough. Brothers and sisters, that would be terrifying. If God was not trustworthy, life would be dark. You would have no hope. The fact that God's grace and truth all go together, that's glorious. That's a wonderful thing. All right, so that's God's grace and truth. Point number two, just to consider that God's grace and truth or trustworthiness was revealed. Now that's a glorious thing. Because in theory, somebody can possess something but not reveal it. Right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a scene here from a movie that I do not recommend you watch. Um, I watched it many, many years ago, uh, and I'm sure there's probably a lot of scenes in there that are not good. But uh, back then, uh, you know, this is my 20th Christmas as a follower of Jesus, 43, so I was 23 when I came to faith. I used to watch that movie Dumb and Dumber a lot growing up. So TJ will know this scene here. But there's this scene uh, where they've they've driven their moped all the way to Aspen, uh, Colorado, and uh, these guys' names are Lloyd and, and Harry. And Harry, they're, they're standing, trying to warm them, themselves by the fire. And Harry, his hands, are, his, his hands are freezing. And he says to Lloyd, he's Lloyd, I, I can't feel my hands, Lloyd. And Lloyd turns to Harry and he says, oh, yeah, you should probably have my extra pair of gloves. My hands are getting kind of sweaty. You know? <laughs> And he's like, it's obvious they have this, this fight. You've had these pair, extra pair of gloves the whole time? Yeah, we're in the Rockies. The point here is that he had those gloves the whole time. He just hadn't revealed it to, uh, to, to Lloyd or to Harry. It's, it's possible to have something, but to just simply not reveal it. The fact that God has actually revealed his grace and revealed his trustworthiness is a glorious thing. That's a wonderful thing for us. To say that we've seen it. Here John says in verse 14, we've seen his glory. Glory as of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. How have we seen the glory of God displayed? In the Son, grace and truth. The fact that God has revealed glory, or revealed grace and truth, is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Now we should at least ask then, how... Did God reveal his grace? How did he reveal his truth? And of course, we could talk many, many ways uh, in terms of how God has revealed his grace to his people. Creation itself is not a requirement. Creation itself is God's grace to the human race, right? When Adam and Eve sin in the garden, God gives them mercy and grace. He does not kill them physically at that moment, right? Instead, a few animals die and they put the garments on. The whole world is corrupt. He rescues Noah by grace. He wasn't required to to rescue Noah through the flood. It was all grace. He comes and calls Abraham. I'm going to make you into a great nation and you will be a blessing to all who bless you. That is Grace to Abraham. Abraham didn't deserve that. It was pure grace to Abraham. 
comes to a little shepherd boy and anoints him as the king. David grows up into a king, and then he comes to David and says, 2 Samuel 7, that he, on David's throne, will, he will have a son who will be king forever. That is grace to David. David didn't deserve that. It was all God's grace. Daniel is being thrown into a lion's den. He doesn't deserve to be preserved through that. God's grace comes and saves Daniel. God brings his people out of exile from Babylon and brings them back to Jerusalem. What is that? Grace. I mean, we could, we could go on and on. We could, we could go all over Scripture to demonstrate how God's grace is revealed. But how does John make his argument here? And I think we see it in verses 16 and 17, and it's worth demonstrating what John is doing here. So let's read that again, verse 16. Uh, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For, or because, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, it's worth trying to figure out what's going on here. Let me point out, first of all, you notice at the beginning of verse 17, that is that word for. So John, John is trying to give a reason uh, why we've received grace upon grace. Well, let me explain why. What, what do I mean by grace upon grace? Well, it's because the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So what is he getting at? Um, you might think, uh, think of it this way. In, in our time and age... Uh, we tend to, just kind of in the air of uh, Christianity, we tend to think of law as burden. Like, think it was what it was like to live under law. Oh, how bad. But we're not under law anymore. We're under grace. Right? Like, isn't this, isn't this good? So we can read a statement like that, and that would trip us up. The Israelites did not think about law as bad or burden. The Israelites, they thought of law as God's grace to them, God's kindness, God's goodness. In fact, uh, Moses in Deuteronomy 4, as he's standing uh, on the edge of the promised land as the people are about to go in and he's giving his final addresses in Deuteronomy 4, he, he, he recounts how, how God brought his people out of Egypt and his kindness to them. And then he says, uh, now, what great nation is there that has a God so near to them like Yahweh our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has rules and statutes so righteous as this law that I'm putting before you this day? You hear how Moses talks about it is that this law is righteous. And then he says, the other nations, they're going to speak about you, and they're going to say, what a wise and understanding people that is. They had a God like that? That gives them such righteous rules, righteous statutes? The, The Israelites thought of the law as God's kindness to them, God's grace to them. And it truly is, and we should we should understand this, right? As parents Good, loving parents give rules to their kids. Right? Would it not be evil for a parent to give a three-year-old 
free reign of the house? That would not be kind. A four-year-old, a five-year-old, a six-year-old say, yeah, you can do whatever you want. That's fine. Because I'm loving. No, that's evil. A loving thing to do is to know what's best for the child and make rules for them and statutes for them as is good for them, right? So the Israelites, when they thought of law or when they thought of Moses giving the law, that's God's kindness. That's God's grace. God gave us his truth. God showed us atonement. God showed us how to live. That's blessing to us. And so when you read there, verse 16 Uh, We've received grace upon grace because Moses, uh, the law came through Moses, grace and truth through through Jesus. I think you're supposed to read that as, remember when Moses gave us the law, right? That was God's grace to us. That was God's truth to us. That was good. And when Jesus came, he didn't get rid of that. It was grace upon grace. Jesus brought in grace and truth. He revealed it most clearly now. But there's this, there's this escalation. You see, the law was given through Moses being an agent. It went God to Moses to the people. But when the word was made flesh, it was God coming straight to the people. You see, verse 18, the Son has revealed God himself because he is God. It's not coming through a, a just a, a only a human agent like Moses. This is God taking on flesh and revealing God's grace to us. There's this escalation then. What happens is because the law was partial. It could partially demonstrate God's grace to us. For example, the law could tell us how to live and what we should do when we failed to live how we should live. This is how you can get atonement. Right? That's what the law showed us. But that's all it could do. Right? When Jesus showed up, he actually was the atonement. Right? There's this escalation. Jesus doesn't just say, well, this is how you should find atonement. Like, go do this. He says, no, I will, I will be the atonement for you. The atonement is in me. The law, the law could tell you how to live But that's all it could do. It didn't have any power in itself. It would say, live like that. But that was the big problem, right? Because we couldn't do that. Jesus came along and says, yes, you're supposed to live like that, but you can't, so I will. And then I'll die in your place and we'll swap. You will have my righteousness. I will take on your curse And now I'll give you the Holy Spirit. I'll give you a new heart as you believe. And now you can go fulfill the law. You can actually walk in the statutes. You see, the law that Moses gave had no power to actually help us to live that way. Jesus actually has an escalated grace. He does give us power to actually live as we're called to live. The law law promised blessing if you would obey God's commands, right? But that's all it could do. It couldn't actually give the blessing. It couldn't prepare you for that. It could just show you. Like, if you live, you will receive that. Jesus came along 
and swapped places with us so that we actually are the righteousness of God. Those who are blood-bought, those who confess Christ as Lord, are actually, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 21, uh, he who made no him... Uh, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. We are now the righteous ones who live under the blessing of God. The law couldn't do that. But Jesus in his person and his work provides that. So what happens then, John, John is trying to point out that grace came through the law, through Moses. And the Israelites would say, yeah, yeah, we love Moses because Moses brought grace to us. He showed us the grace of God, the truth of God. We love the law. And we're supposed to have that, yes, Moses is good, but Jesus is better. And that, that's the way that the author of Hebrews writes his, his whole letter, remember. Is he's, he's always pointing out something that's really good and then showing how Jesus is better. And that's the way this argument goes, is that the grace of God, the truth of God, or the trustworthiness of God was most ultimately displayed in the person and in the work of Jesus himself. Which leads us to the last point here, is that the greatest revelation of God's grace and trustworthiness came in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now what happens in our section here, 14 to 18, um, is somewhat unique. Um, throughout, from verse 1 to 18, I don't know if you notice this, but Jesus has not been mentioned at all. He finally gets named in verse 17. So John, up until this point, has been talking about Jesus. He just doesn't name him. Sort of like, uh, you know, our, our kids uh, at their school, I don't know if your kids have, have did this, but they play this game when they're real young uh, called uh, Who Am I? <clears throat> and so they come up with these things to, to try to demonstrate what they're talking about. So, so I, would, I might say, Who am I? I have four legs and a tail. I live in the eastern and southern regions of Africa. I have black spots. And I can run up to 80 miles per hour. Who am I? And you say a cheetah. Right? I've, I've described for you so you know all the qualities. And then I finally, now it's like, oh, that's who you are. So here John has talked about the word of God who existed before creation began and in fact was the very one who created all things, the word. And he talk, calls this, this person he's talking about is the life, the very source of life, source of creation life and source of new creation life. And that when that life came to man, he was like light, light shining through the darkness, transforming radically. He brought light this word then takes on flesh in verse 14. He calls him a son, and then it's finally in 17. It says, yes, I'm talking about that man. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. He is the one who is full of grace and truth. Which means if we want to see the fullest display of God's grace, the fullest display of God's trustworthiness. Where do we go? John's trying to narrow it down. We go to Jesus. We, we look at that child in the manger, and as Paul says in Titus, the grace of God appeared to us. Or in 2 Corinthians 8, 
where he says, For you know the grace of God, that though he was rich, Jesus became poor. The grace of God was God coming and taking on flesh. If you want to see the greatest display of God's grace, we look to Jesus. Did you know, in verse 14, did you notice that in verse 16, this idea of fullness? He was full of grace and full of truth. From his fullness we have received grace and truth. Sometimes we tend to think of, of these categories like grace and truth or grace and trustworthiness and trustworthy and commands such as like, you're, we're sort of like, we have 100% between the both and we have to divide them somehow, like 60, 40. And that's not what John says. He's, he's full of grace and he's full of truth. It's 100% and 100%. There's no, there's no separation here. He's full of both. You know, when you think of, uh, you know, you might say this about someone, he, he's full of baloney, right? That's the other side, right? What does that mean? Well, it means anything that comes out of him, you can't trust. It's just full of baloney. It's a funny statement. I don't know how baloney has, I guess because baloney is fake meat, I guess. I'm just working this out up here. Um, or you might say he's full of energy. And when you look at the person, it's just it's like my son is just full of energy, just like constant. So to think of Jesus as full of grace, he's full of truth. John, as he's reflecting on who this man was, his Lord, his master, that's all that came out of him. He just oozed grace. He oozed truth. That's all that came out. That's just a, spilled out of him was grace, was truth. So then, we should bring this home. This is sort of basic stuff, right? I mean, Jesus is full of grace. Jesus is full of truth. But is this not uh, sort of embracing this and letting this go into our soul, is this not sort of uh, the difference between sanity this week and being consumed with fear? Being a stress ball? To actually know functionally, deep in our heart, that when Jesus looks at us, grace is going to come out. His unmerited kindness. We should know we don't deserve God's favor. But Jesus is full of it for you if you're one of his. Do you know that? Perhaps there is someone here who needs to know that today and this week, our Lord will be full of grace for you. Maybe that will be like John and Peter and the disciples needed when they denied Christ. They, they chose another path. They, they rejected being his disciples for a moment. They gave him up. And yet the grace of God came running after them to bring them into the fold. Maybe sin and temptation has begun to get the upper hand. And brother or sister, you need to know that the Christ has grace for you. And it's not simply only grace for forgiveness, but grace for power to fight against it. 
You are, you are, if you're one of Christ's people, you are not a slave to, it, to sin. We are slaves to God. And Christ has grace for you. Or maybe you find yourself against the wall in life where you, you know that life, what's going on, is, is beyond your ability to, to handle. You don't have that kind of power. You're in way over your head. You can't deal with these things, whether it be at work or at home, extended family, these painful situations. You do not have it. But brother or sister, Christ will have grace for you. It may not be the type of grace that we want that's going to relieve us from the hard situation, but it just may be the grace to give you power to endure through it. Like the Apostle Paul, when he prays for that thorn to be taken away from him three times in 2 Corinthians 12 there. Remember, Jesus, what does he say? What does he tell Paul? My grace, Paul, my grace, my grace will be sufficient for you. And so how does Paul respond? He says, therefore, I'll boast about my weakness. Because in my weakness, God's power is displayed. Now, there may be people here. Maybe, you, maybe you're strong this week. But maybe you, God would be calling you to be an agent of, of someone to take this grace to them and say, brother or sister, I know right now it's hard to know that God's grace is going to get us through this, but you put your arm around me and I'm going to help carry you through this. I'm going to be with you, and I'll be a minister of God's grace to you. You know that if you're strong this week, if you are experiencing the grace of God, that's what you're meant to be to the, the, the church. That's not just for you. Paul talks about being comforted in, in the grace of God and the gospel so that we can be a comfort to, to others. If you're experiencing the grace of God and feel strong, find somebody who needs that. And walk alongside them. Grab their arm. Put it on your shoulder. Or maybe there's someone here today who needs to know that Jesus, he's full of trustworthiness. In what he commands. His commands are good for you. They don't always feel like it. You know, we're told to not grumble. Grumbling feels good. Yeah? Jesus calls us to have forgiveness that will blow our minds because bitterness sometimes feels better. Forgiveness is not easy, but that's what Jesus calls us to. To serve, and to sacrifice, to lay down our lives, to take up the cross and follow Christ. All these are good commands for us. But what do we want to do? We typically, especially as Americans, we want to find comfort. How, do, how does life the most simplest? How, how do I get benefit out of this? And that's not how we're called to live, brothers and sisters. We're called to live to serve and sacrifice, lay down our lives for the sake of others. And in that, we will find joy in the gospel so as we enter into a new year, may it be a year where we serve, we sacrifice, we lay ourselves down for the sake of the kingdom. 
and not live for this world. Maybe we need to hear, uh, someone here needs to hear the trustworthiness of Christ in his promise, his promises. Maybe in particular is that he truly has prepared a place for us. This world is full of pain. It's full of sorrow. We've been promised it. It's full of heartache. Some that we bring upon ourselves. Some that others bring upon us. And it's full of it. But the Lord, he promised that he has gone before us, prepared a place where we will go. There will be no more pain. There will be no more tears. You'll never have a, a final goodbye to someone. Ever again. There will be no more death. What a glorious day that will be. And Christ promises that for his people. And he's trustworthy. We can trust it. And brothers and sisters, that can give us power that we need for the week. Now how do we know this is true? But the fact that the Son of God took on flesh, he revealed God to us. He already fulfilled his promise to come and rescue us. And we know it because he hung there on the cross. And we know it because the tomb was empty. He ascended into glory. And he reigns over all now. And if the Lord Jesus went through all that, he is not going to leave us hanging. He's already done the most difficult things. And so this morning as we partake of the Lord's Supper, let let the Supper remind us of the great depths that God has already gone to gather us in as his people. Surely, if his grace is demonstrated in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, and his trustworthiness is seen there, surely we can bank on it for this week. So the Lord's table is for those who worship Jesus and walk with him uh, in faith. It doesn't mean about perfection, but about direction. Uh, we're a, a faith-filled, stumbling people, right? We, we hobble our way through. Uh, but this is, life is about faith and repentance. So if that is you here this morning, if you worship Jesus as the Christ, uh, though we stumble, uh, the table is open to you. If you're here this morning and you do not worship Jesus as Christ, the risen Lord, God who took on flesh, uh, then the table is not for you. The scriptures say that it would be bad for your soul to partake of it, so we ask that you not partake. Uh, or if you're here this morning and you claim to worship Jesus, but you live a different way, uh, then the scripture also commands you not to partake. But if you are here uh, walking in stumbling faith, we, we would love to partake of the Lord's Supper together. So come, grab the elements, uh, return to your seats, and we'll partake together. Christians, the broken body of Jesus is God's grace to you. You have been cleansed of your sin forever. There is no more curse. There is no more penalty to be paid. It has been wiped clean. Because the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it saying, This is my body, which is broken for you.